Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives Podcast. I'm Oliver Hartwig and today I'm joined once again by our Chief Economist Eric Hampton and our Senior Fellow Bryce Wilkinson. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Oliver. We want to talk about the issue of the week and it's a sad one because we all know what happened with Cyclone Gabrielle. Terrible tragedy, loss of lives, loss of livelihoods, massive destruction in the upper part of the North Island. But there are economic consequences as well and that's what we want to focus on today. First of all, just starting very broadly, does any of you have a guess or a guesstimate on how much damage we are looking at if you quantify it from previous experiences? I sure don't. It's way too early to tell. We're still only getting very scattered reports coming in from some communities that have very poor internet and telecom connectivity. We're not going to know the scope until folks have had a chance to get out there. What do you think, Bryce? The loss of Christchurch was was substantial. I don't have off the the top of my head what it was as a percentage of GDP, but a lot of it was covered by overseas insurers, and this may be less the case this time. The losses on the Think Big projects in the late 1980s were substantial. My my feeling is, I'd have to check this, that might have been about 10% of GDP. That's roughly what I remember too from then. It was certainly much stronger loss of life, but um, it was a more geographically concentrated yes. event. Yes, this really affects agriculture, and I don't know what the livestock numbers are or the loss of productive land, but it, it looks like it could take a substantial amount of time for the debris and, and mud to be removed from productive land. So let's go through some of the anticipated economic effects then. What does all of this mean for... Let's start with inflation and the cost of living crisis. Well, building materials have been scarce. Some of that had started easing as interest rates are putting some projects on hold or knocking them back. But you're going to see capacity constraints in the sector reemerge. There will be massive infrastructure build and rebuild that has to come in. They will need to find workers for that and materials and kit. I don't know how many houses are going to wind up having to have all their jib torn out, the insulation pulled out, dried out, re-insulated, re-jibbed, repainted. You're going to need materials for that, and you're going to need workers for that in the wake of Christchurch. And that will take years. Oh, yeah. It's it's not going to be a short-term thing. In the short term, perhaps a massive impact on food prices? Yeah. As seasonal crops that would have been coming in don't come in, there will be effects there. Mm-hmm. And then longer run, effects through building materials, labor costs. Yes. And probably over a period of... Many years, I think the Christchurch rebuild had a massive economic impact for about six, seven years, right? Well, the rebuild did take a very long time, and there's, well, they're, they're still looking to break ground on the Anchor Project Stadium that they'd stupidly promised as part of that. Yeah, and the precinct ideas restricted people's options too. I read that you know, plumbers are going to be in short supply in Auckland. If the labour market's free enough, we should see an exodus of tradesmen from the South Island and the less affected places into the places like Auckland, where the need's most desperate. So we should see wage rates going up for the the short supplies in Auckland and other places, and hopefully there's flexibility for outfits like Fletcher Construction to shift workers around. Immigration policy is obviously going to be important and not being too restrictive about the school or not be anti-competitive about the schools of the people who let in. But you would both expect an inflationary impetus. It's got to have an effect on the CPI Mm. 
and that's and the debate there is if it's a one-off effect because it's a one-off cause can the central bank look through it or not and should it look through it or not and that's a judgment call as to how likely it is that it will trigger ongoing wage inflation beyond the necessarily relative wage rate inflation, which is probably needed now. Yeah, it was good that you described that as an increase in the CPI, which isn't always the same thing as inflation, right? So yeah, in I common, agree with that. Yeah, in common parlance, inflation is just the change in CPI over time, but... If you're just dealing with relative price effects out of something like this, that does increase prices on average as a one-off. That's not the same thing as inflation. And it could affect inflation expectations, which then gets complicated. But just as a one-off, it starts getting into the kind of thing that reserve banks would look through. No, thanks for the clarification. That's what I meant. But Uh, at the same time, we, we can work to mitigate those effects, right? So if you make it impossible for building materials from overseas to come in and help with the rebuild, you will have a larger effect on prices. If you shift the regulatory and consenting structures so that you're able to use plasterboard from overseas, you won't see the same run-up in plasterboard prices because New Zealand is a drop in the bucket compared to global markets. We wouldn't have to be running out supplies and you could keep prices down. And similarly with labor, so in the after Christchurch, we had a Christchurch skills shortage list, which allowed a lot more workers to come in to help with the rebuild. Now, we had the weird good fortune at that time that it coincided with the GFC and construction busts everywhere else in the world. So you had unemployed workers everywhere else, giant construction project in Christchurch. Those two meshed well together, and I couldn't walk across campus at Canterbury oh. without Irish accents and floral everywhere, right? Yes. Bit of a different circumstance now, but still making it really easy for people to come in and help with the rebuild would be would be pretty good. Okay. So just to step back a bit, we'll probably see a bit of an effect, effect on CPI. In the short run, perhaps on food prices, because a large amount of crop will probably be destroyed, also disrupted supply chains, and then the medium to longer term, of course, um, the effect from the rebuild, building materials and so on. Uh, What does it mean for GDP? Well, you get the usual stupid thing where measure GDP can go up because you've had huge... With the reconstruction boom. With the reconstruction boom. But immediately, probably more dampening effect? You would expect so because there's a massive hindrance in production. So in the short run, probably a fall in GDP followed by a reconstruction boom? A fall relative to what it otherwise would have been. what I mean, yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But when you put the two together, so in the short run you see an uptick in CPI and you also in the short run see a downward movement on GDP. What does that mean for monetary policy then? Well, uh, yeah, as I said uh, a few minutes ago, it's a matter of whether the central bank can, decides it can look for, look through it or whether it thinks, well, the, the one-off blip will change expectations and lead to ongoing wage infla- and price inflation. As and other and we've got a Reserve yeah. Bank meeting next week, so where do you think they will end up then weighing these two? It's tricky. I'm no expert, I'm not monitoring it closely, I'm not close to anyone involved, but my guess is that they'll be worried about the real economy effects and they'll be they'll be 
more inclined to be softer, not to put up the, the central bank discount rate as much as, as they might have been a week or two ago. They'll also recognize that uh, same thing that happened after Christchurch, we had massive insurance inflows, right? So EQC has reinsurance overseas that turns into big piles of foreign money coming into New Zealand to fund parts of the rebuild that are covered by insurance. Private insurance policies, those wind up being backed by giant reinsurers overseas who send money in to pay off claims. But there are massive time lags involved in all of this. That's also true. So for the Reserve Bank, this is a massive dilemma. So they will probably face higher CPI pressures right at the time that the economy is also more likely to tank as a result of all of this. Yes, that's right. It's, it's called a negative supply shock yes. <laughs> of an inflationary nature. Yeah. Right. Okay, then let's look a little bit further when it comes to the rebuild. You both had a paper out just a few years ago, and it was called Recipe for Disaster. And uh, you were trying to draw out the consequences, the policy consequences from the Canterbury earthquakes. And one of the points of that paper was that you argued there should be a recipe for such disasters. You didn't have in mind floods, you had in mind earthquakes. But the idea was to design a policy framework that could be activated at a time of crisis. Would this be now one of those moments when you would like to activate something and what would it be? Well, it's a pretty different scenario. So in Christchurch, there were a whole pile of longstanding issues that people had with how the city was laid out and how it functioned that they wanted to see rectified in post-earthquake rezoning and replanning. And the problem that you get with that is just massive regime uncertainty of what's going to be allowed where for years and years and years after the earthquake event. So it compounded all of the fundamental uncertainty about how many more aftershocks you're going to be having and when and how big are they, all of that uncertainty then piles on top of that policy uncertainty about whether you're going to be allowed to rebuild in place. Now, the pre-planning that we were suggesting was if you have these kinds of longstanding issues, don't try to deal with them after an event like an earthquake or a flood, have them as part of your long-term plan so that if an event happens that would cause you to do this, you've got a template there that everybody's already thought about and deliberated over that you could invoke. Now, I doubt that that's in place anywhere that's been substantially flood affected, and floods are going to be a lot different than earthquakes where you did have a lot, well, it wasn't just need to rebuild roads and such. You had buildings that were completely flattened and blocks that were gone. So it's, it's a pretty different kind of scenario, but we did have some lessons out of there, like don't change the building code immediately after an event has happened. It might seem tempting because, well, you've learned things in the event and you want to improve stuff, but you're inducing more uncertainty and you're breaking a whole pile of insurance contracts. So it's hard to tell how to resolve an insurance claim if you're not allowed to rebuild it to the building that it was when it was insured. We wouldn't see that here with a flood. But you also had in mind some measures to speed up the rebuild. So there we were suggesting things like government being very quick to seek declaratory judgments if there are weirdnesses that emerge after the event has happened that are sort of common grounds for, for uncertainty. So in Christchurch, one example would have been, is it a betterment to rebuild to the new building code? How much, how should you apportion that? 
getting declaratory judgments over that might have been helpful. Um, be, being quick to get those so that everybody can move on. That would be one lesson. I, if such issues emerge in the current case, then that could be a lesson here, but I have no clue whether that's something that's going to come up. And Bryce, do you see any parallels? Yes, one of the ones I remember Eric emphasized was restrictions on people's ability to respond, building granny flats and that sort of thing. So a lot of people here have lost their homes. They need alternative accommodation. Probably there are rules in place which restrict their options undesirably at such a time. So uh, again, pre-planning would identify issues like that and allow the law, you know, the, the restrictions to be reduced so people can be more resilient and respond um, more flexibly as according to their circumstances. Yeah, making it easy for people to rebuild quickly and to a greater density than was there before or to a more liberal standard, that doesn't impede people's ability to rebuild what they already had. You're not in trouble with your insurer because you're not blocked from building the thing that you used to have. But if you're on a piece of high land that's relatively safe and you were looking to rebuild anyway and a lot of places are destroyed and some parts of pieces of land you might not want to rebuild on, making sure that zoning is flexible so that people can build as the land now suits would be pretty good. We already touched on it earlier, but we had massive supply constraints in building construction infrastructure before the cyclone. This will be probably a lot worse now that has happened, what can be done to get the capacity into the country? Easing restrictions on the use of foreign building materials, which isn't just regulatory constraints, it's also making sure that planners are happy to sign off on buildings that use new and innovative materials. You'd probably want to be looking at master builder warranties rather than... I'll step back for a second... Councils have been very nervous about uh, signing off on buildings where things have been done a little bit differently because they're scared about the risk that they take on. Master builder warranty structures are a different way of handling that so that councils might be a little bit less nervous. Making sure that everybody in the system is happy with new materials that become available from overseas if we start running short on ones here might be pretty good. Making sure that those can be effectively used, making sure we can get workers in the country to be able to help with the rebuild. That might not be an immediate thing because it'll take time for people to get their insurance claims sorted out and then get the works underway. But getting those systems in place that Immigration New Zealand can start authorizing workers to come in would be very good as well. And do you see a realistic prospect of that? I can hope. <laughs> okay. There, there is a risk as well that there will be a big public pressure on governments to restrict the supply of land for housing by deeming it to be too flood, flood prone or too prone to slips. And um, that, could, that could make things tougher. That does get into one of the bigger policy risks. So over the past couple of years, government has been thinking about flood insurance more generally and what they've been calling managed retreat in response to climate change. What do we do with low-lying low areas or floodplains? And how, how, do we, how do we think about that? How do we manage it? How do we make sure it's equitable? One weirdness in New Zealand's policy structure is that whenever you go and buy house insurance, your EQC levy doesn't vary with the riskiness of the place that you're in. So if you're in a multi-million dollar uh, property at the top of a cliff and it's likely to teeter over the cliff, come a big slip, 
you're paying the same per dollar insured as somebody on flat land in a very safe place. Now, that has the effect of encouraging too much development in risky places and too little in safer places. Councils like to respond to that by drawing lines on maps and saying, well, you should avoid these places and build more in this place instead. That really, it ignores what people want, right? Mm. So if you instead work it through prices and you could, you could direct EQC to start setting actuarially fair premiums. They've got decades of insurance claims data. You could start setting premiums on properties that reflect what the claims history has looked like so that it's more expensive to insure in risky places, less expensive to insure in less risky places, and then people can weigh those things up. Do you really like the cliffside views? And are you willing to pay the insurance premiums that are associated with it? Absolutely. There's never a good time for a natural disaster, but election years uh, probably bring some complications to the response. Yeah, it's a mess. So there's always pressure for more bailouts than might be warranted. Now, I'm not talking about just like the immediate stuff that's going on right now that's laudable. You want government coming in and having the emergency shelters and all of that stuff's great. The worry that you do start getting into uh, in Christchurch, for example, there's discussions about bailing out people who, who are uninsured on bare land because then it was pretty dicey about whether it was even an insurable proposition if it was bare land. They wound up not bailing out people who were uninsured on their houses, but they did have some payouts for bare land. You can, there will be massive hardship oh. for people who had not been insured and who then, well, they're, they're in a horrible spot. That can lead to a lot of pressure for government to provide fairly substantial support and it, Which it, undermines the case it, for It tugs at heartstrings, and you, yeah. and you can make, make those cases, but it undermines the incentive to get insurance and to pay for that. If you turn the whole thing into a, a socialized system, well, it's it's even worse, right? So EQC has its own problem in, char- in charging the same rate for risky places versus not risky places, but they charge more for more expensive properties than for cheaper properties. If you instead say, well, there's no point in even getting insurance because government's just going to bail you out afterwards, one, it discourages people from getting insurance in the first place. Two, it leaves everybody disappointed in the end because government can never afford to bail everybody out if it comes to that. So that will be really difficult for the prime minister and the government to deal with. They're going to be faced with horrible claims for support in real cases of massive hardship in an election year where you're going to have a lot of media focus on it, it will, it'll be difficult for them to resist that. Yeah, your hardship they should be, and should, they should and will deal with under welfare policy. Bailing out for capital loss is beyond yep. helping people through hardship is, is a, uh, a bridge they should hesitate to cross for the reasons Eric's laid out. And I guess the other thing that they could do to help ease some of that hardship is easing one of the credit constraints. So we'd seen Lynn McMorrin earlier talking about the triple CFA rules and how, okay, there's been some minor easing of those so that banks are a little bit more flexible in lending to people who now face some greater need for need for borrowing. So stepping back for a second, government imposed a whole pile of rules on the banks and the non-bank lending sector requiring massive checks to make sure that people can afford to pay back their loans as though the sector already didn't have massive incentive to do that because they don't want to wind up with people who can't afford to pay off their loans because you just lose your money on that, right? So 
it's layered a whole lot of process on top of things and made it really hard for people to get loans because you have to document everything. You put that into a post-disaster scenario when you need money in a really big hurry to start fixing things and making safe and paying for emergency accommodation or skipping town for a month and a half because the power is going to be out. If you need money to deal with that and you want to be able to draw on your existing lines of credit or to extend the mortgage on your house, spending three days putting together documentation on how much you spend on pet food per month probably shouldn't be front of mind for people. Those rules should be eased to let banks make their own decisions and non-bank lenders as well. And then there is another policy consequence still, and that is um, on climate change policy. So we're already hearing claims from the Green Party that this should now lead to a speeding up on our mitigation efforts in climate change. I would have thought even the best mitigation efforts from New Zealand probably wouldn't have made much of a difference here. It's adaptation that we should be talking about because these events, if they are right, will become more frequent in the future and we have to make preparations for them. I'd agree with that, but I could also see that there's a case for actually starting to take mitigation policy seriously. And by seriously, oh, I mean... You mean the ETS? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we keep doing really dumb stuff like yes. that costs like thousands of dollars per ton of carbon dioxide that's being avoided mm -hmm. when it costs about $70, $75 a ton to mitigate emissions through the emissions trading scheme, stopping all of the unduly costly regulatory interventions, retrenching sure. to the ETS, setting the cap... The, the the, cat, the path for the cap to get down to zero at net zero, making that more credible, that would make a lot of sense. It, it, that Inde would make independent a lot of sense. The, Indeed, yeah. I just don't think that's what they had in mind. No, it isn't what they have in mind. It's it's typical crisis politics yes. where you latch on to, well, here's the big terrible thing that's happened, therefore we must do the thing that we always wanted to do. Yeah. Seems to me it, it's crazy. It's like an ambulance man coming along and finding someone's been injured and then saying, all right, we'll shoot you in the foot as well. Because people have lost so much wealth, so much money, and now you'd add to their costs for no, no benefits. And, and that compounds it, right? We're mm -hmm. a, a small country, we're not that rich, and anything that we do that layers unnecessary cost on ourselves that hurts economic growth makes us less able to deal with disasters like this. So, like, imagine that New Zealand disappeared from the world tomorrow and had zero gross emissions, right? We no longer exist, it's sunk into the ocean, the space aliens that are running the balloons over America, maybe we, they've taken it away, New Zealand's no longer here you might slow down global temperature change over the next century by one, make, one to three days, something on that order. No, no discernible difference. Well, yeah. it, it might make one to three days difference, and I'm not saying that this is a reason to not do anything. New Zealand absolutely should be doing its share, but it's a case for being realistic about whether there's a tie between mitigation policy and the storms that we're now facing and dealing with them. We should take adaptation seriously, get a lot of that stuff right, make sure that our mitigation policy is fit for purpose, but it's not really making a case for hastening regulatory measures around reducing emissions or hastening stuff around agriculture. Those cases are independent of the current storm. Mm. I want to ask you a question just to speculate because I don't have an answer at all on this one. What does it tell us about the quality of our infrastructure? I mean, there are two ways of looking at it. You could look at this event and say, hey, this was a massive storm of the century-like event, 
And actually, we only had maybe a few casualties. Yes, we had massive property damage, but altogether, if that had happened in Vanuatu or in Papua New Guinea, the effects would have been far worse. So actually, we've come through this relatively well, given the size of the event. There's another way of looking at it, saying, well, actually, should we really be satisfied with an infrastructure where substations get flooded in such an event, where whole parts of roading infrastructure just break away like this? Or does it actually tell us our infrastructure is not as good as we thought it was? On which side of the fence would you lean? We're not as rich as the United States. We can't afford the kinds of stuff that they put in. We are richer than places like Vanuatu. We can afford better kit than they have. Setting up systems that are resilient to one in a hundred year event. Well, this isn't a one in a hundred year event. This is more like a one in 40 year event. I think the last comparable cyclone was about 40 years ago. Was it the it was early 80s? In the, somewhere in the mid 90s, 1980s, right? Yeah. yeah. So about 40 year intervals. Do you want to set all of your kits that this never happens to them over a 40 year cycle? Is it cost effective to set up kit that this doesn't happen to once every 40 years? Like, those are good questions for a serious cost-benefit assessment. I don't have answers for them off the top, but it isn't crazy to me that weird, costly things can happen once every 40 years and that it is cheaper to just deal with it once every 40 years than to build everything to a standard that avoids them happening ever. Yes, that's right. There's there's too much. Uh, people expect too much from government. <laughs> and when things go wrong, they think, well, this should never have happened. But... The country just can't afford to eliminate every risk and it's probably not practical anyway. So there's got to be a balancing of costs of greater safety versus the benefits. On the other hand, some bits of it that you see are just just obviously stupid, right? So yesterday there was the evacuation of some 50 apartments in Auckland because, well, it was a development, these reasonably new apartments, but there was a uh, shot tower that is nearby. So yeah, 100 years ago, they were making lead shot in the shot tower and somebody stuck a, stuck a heritage designation on the darn thing. So when they were building the apartments, they couldn't tear down the shot tower to put up more apartments because the community uproar and there is a heritage designation that makes everything hard. But then they had to evacuate the apartments because the shot tower is going to fall on the apartments. Now, like, that's just obviously stupid. This isn't a, well, we're too poor to be able to afford better kit. This is us just setting fundamentally stupid ways of dealing with heritage structures and putting no, setting no cost in Heritage New Zealand or anyone else for making designations on stuff that are really low value and impose massive costs on everybody else come an event. We, we need to redo that whole setup. Now, I want to finish on one point that we've discussed repeatedly over the past few years, and that was we always pointed out that you should have very prudent fiscal policy because you need to prepare for disasters, because we know we live in a relatively dangerous country for natural disasters. There will always be the occasional earthquake, there will always be a flood, and we need to have some room for maneuver, fiscally speaking. Is that the kind of event you had in mind? Well, this is on the smaller side of those, but yeah, Treasury has always warned that you want to have enough debt headroom to be able to deal with a couple of serious events while you're in an economic downturn. In the rough and ready ballpark that I've had in mind that I've understood, Bryce might have a better recollection of it, but... There have been a lot of calls for taking on an awful lot more debt, pointing to overseas where they have much higher debt-to-GDP ratios. The problem is that the magnitude of shocks that can hit New Zealand relative to the size of our economy is very different. So 
once the earthquake hits Wellington, that will be a much larger fraction of New Zealand's GDP that's affected than if a, an earthquake hit Los Angeles in an economy the size of America's, for example, right? So it's been great that the debt track has not been quite as bad as was forecast in May 2020 or thereabouts, where we were looking at much higher debt-to-GDP ratios. We still have had a fair bit of imprudent spending and blowing of parts of the money that wasn't needed for the COVID response. Rather than retiring that debt or putting it to other purpose, they've been spending it on other things. That means that we have less flexibility for dealing with more events. Hopefully, the election year won't see us have further blowouts in election spend and turn this into reason for a lot of other public projects in affected areas because there is still potential for worst waves of pandemic or Alpine Fault opening up. Wellington is on something like 0.83% per year chance of the big one hitting, and those risks just keep compounding over time. Maintaining that headroom is still really important. But so far, at least with this particular event and the given level of indebtedness, you are not that concerned right now. No, unless they have a big spending budget that blows the debt track that they were otherwise on, and then we get a Wellington earthquake on top. Yes, I have disquiet about the public debt level. The Public Finance Act, as we know, requires the government to specify a prudent level of debt. And if we're above that, which we, we, we have been, um, a credible plan for getting back to it. And what the government did was substantially increased the level it regarded as prudent in the COVID epidemic. And there's been deficit spending and, and spraying money around, justified, uh, we're trying to justify it by the epidemic. And that's going to be a debate that will rage for some decades. And then the Reserve Bank sort of added about eight or nine billion to the public debt through uh, paying too much to buy government bonds for not a good enough reason. And now it's election year, and we're, it was already looking like it would be yet another lottery scramble. Now, and this has been a big spending government even before COVID hit. So yes, we are vulnerable. The government will put more and more things on the credit card. And that's, uh, while one professes to be caring about future generations, putting more and more on the credit card uh, frequently is not doing them a favour. Well, and let's see what the political response will be to the cyclone. I think this will be an issue that will be with us for the rest of this year, and probably longer. But for now, thank you to both of you for shedding light on the economic implications. Thank Thanks. you, Oliver. Thank you.